You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 15th of October, 2019, on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. The Kurds fought inch by inch. They were the people who expelled ISIS fighters from those regions. And now ISIS fighters, 500 of them, have escaped already. The shifting power dynamic in the Syrian conflict. My guests, Kapil Kamaretti and Mary Dejewski, will discuss this and the day's other news stories, including why does the UK government want to introduce stricter regulations about voter ID during elections? And will it be a vote-winning idea? We'll also learn what was on the agenda for Chinese President Xi Jinping's recent trips to India and Nepal. Plus, some perspective on moving to and making a life in a new country. They were hoping to find safe passage from Calais to Dover in the comfort of my boxes. My entire life, really. I'm Daniel Bage. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Kapil Kamareddy, author of Malevolent Republic, A Short History of the New India, and Mary Dejewski, writer for The Independent and for The Guardian. Welcome both to the program. We will begin with Syria, where the ramifications for the U.S. abandoning its support of Kurdish fighters in the region are beginning to be felt on the international stage, with the Kurds seemingly open to cooperating with the Assad regime in order to maintain some degree of stability and military protection against Turkey. It represents a bigger shift in dynamic in the proxy power balance between Washington and Moscow in Syria. Russia, of course, continues to support the denounced Assad regime as it has throughout this war. Mary, we'll begin with you. Why are the Kurds now looking to Assad for support? Well, I think that's probably the key, that there really isn't any other option other than going it alone. Um, and they've made really the um, the very practical, very realistic um, decision that to, um, to minimise um, their potential losses, um, they've decided basically to switch sides. Um, that seems to me a very um, hard-headed decision and not something that is you know, to be challenged on any grounds. I mean, they've been deserted by the Americans. So if, if this is about preservation, then that's where they're going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kapil, how big a shift in the war do you think this is? Even as an enemy to Turkey, the Kurds played a major role in the fight against ISIS. And now uh, they've been abandoned by the US, it seems. Yeah, and their abandonment has confirmed all the claims made by Russia that America is an unreliable ally. Mm. Uh, What America did uh, to the Afghans in the 80s, it's doing to the Kurds today. The Kurds fought inch by inch and they were the they were the people who expelled ISIS fighters from those regions, and now ISIS fighters, five hundred of them, have escaped already, and they've effectively, as Maria's just mentioned, they've been orphaned. And as a result, they've turned to Russia. And on Russian television, they're trumpeting this fact. They're saying, you know, America has once again abandoned people who set their clocks by the West. America's credibility in the region is in tatters. Hmm. Uh, Mary, I wonder about uh, Russia's aims in this war and if those have changed in this shift. Well, I think there's, I mean, there is a very, very interesting question about how big a shift we're actually looking at in the region as a whole. Um, and there's, there's interesting um, 
disputes about this because some people say, well, actually, it's not really such a big deal. The Americans didn't have so many people there. Um, it's just more of the same. Um, I actually dispute that. I think it's a gigantic shift. Um, and I think it's, um, to my mind, in fact, the belated um, retreat, maybe final exit of the United States from the region. Um, and I think that um, this could well have happened under other presidents. I don't think it's primarily about, you know, Trump as an isolationist or America first. I think it's a, it's a realistic appraisal by the Americans of what they could realistically do hmm. um, and whether they should have been there in the first place and an acceptance of defeat. But when we look at Russia, I know there's, the, 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 there's a lot of people around saying this marks a gigantic victory for Russia. Um, this marks the return of Russia as a sort of um, as a big player in the Middle East. Now, I think it may indicate the return of Russia as a player. I don't think in, in terms of Russia, this is a huge geopolitical change because I think that Russia's objectives in Syria from the moment they intervened to shore up the Assad regime, um, I think their objectives were very limited. I think they wanted to be seen as a player in the region, but I think primarily they didn't want the collapse of Syria into anarchy. They saw what had happened in Iraq. They, want, they saw what had happened in Libya. Um, and they regarded complete disorder of that sort in Syria as something that would be a threat to them. And so it's often said that Russia was intervening to protect and um, to defend their client in the region, Assad. I don't think that's what this was about. About. I think they've been open to new constitutional arrangements. I think they're still open to new constitutional arrangements. It's about preventing the spread of the sort of anarchy that, that, that Russia saw elsewhere where there'd been Western interventions. And they looked at it and said, first of all, there must be another way. Second of all, that Russia's interests were not going to be served by a chaotic um, mm. Syria. And what they've tried to do is, yes, they've been shoring up Assad, but I don't think it's about Assad personally. I think it's about the only force that could actually hold or reconstitute Syria together and that for, from then on, we could be looking at change, but change of a different sort. Well, that's interesting. And, and the point about the relationship between Putin and Assad as well in that alliance. Kapil, I want to bring you back in here. There are uh, serious misgivings, however, about Moscow's behavior in this war, including the bombing of hospitals, which has been uncovered. But it seems still that nothing will break this bond between uh, those two leaders. Well, so, so Russia has made significant gains since it backed Assad in the beginning mm. of the war. In 2012, I was in Damascus covering the start of the civil war and it seemed like madness to back a regime that seemed to be on the precipice of collapse but Russia's uh, investment has paid off and Russia is unlikely to abandon Assad now that there is a lot of reconstruction to be done mm. there are you know this is an oligarchic state that has uh, Putin has a lot of clients who will now f uh, get contracts in Syria and Syria is likely to yield tremendous results for uh, Russia in many ways but there's also the risk it runs uh, of Russian troops coming into contact with Turkish forces now. Much of com much of the commentary in Russia is about the a clash between Turkish troops and Russian troops 
and this could spiral out of control mm. because Turkey is a member of NATO. We, that's true. And, and on the point of Turkey being a NATO, a NATO member, um, the U.S. did play a big role. And even though the, the Turks were opposed to the Kurds, the U.S. and Turkey seem to still get along in this. The U.S. has been been pulled out of that equation. And a third of the country is controlled by Kurdish-backed forces. But there are some reports, Mary, that uh, now uh, you have Turkey and Russia simply wanting to carve out the country for themselves. Yes. I mean, as, as I said, I think that Russia's um, ambitions in terms of territory are actually much um, much less ambitious than they're often given credit for. Um, I also think there's another factor which is often underestimated, which is that um, Russia does have public opinion. And Russia becoming embroiled in fighting wars where Russian servicemen could lose their lives is a very, very sensitive issue. There is the shadow of Afghanistan still hangs over post-Soviet Russia. And Putin has to be very careful. Um, the Russian intervention in Syria was not hugely popular. Um, how far it was intervening in eastern Ukraine, for instance, similar thing. Um, you have to be very, very careful about um, soldiers returning in coffins and the very influential um, soldiers' mothers' movement, um, which was really reconstituted. It was, it, it was very big towards the end of the Afghan war. Um, and it's been reconstituted um, with Russian involvement in, in Ukraine and bodies being mm. brought back and buried secretly. Um, and the, 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 the influence of that, the impact of that on Russian public opinion, Putin has to bear that in mind. Uh, just uh, lastly and briefly on this, Kapil, uh, how wide, widespread is the fear of ISIS coming back from all the sides in this in this war? I think one of the one of the great mistakes was to think that ISIS had gone away. Uh, ISIS fighters were in detention; they were being held by the Kurds. Uh, there were sleeper cells that have become active now, and 500 of them, as I previously mentioned, have already escaped. And as the fighting intensifies, the capacity of the SDF to keep an eye on ISIS fighters diminishes. And as a result of that, ISIS fighters are likely to regroup. And there is a great possibility that they will come back. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think we've seen the last of ISIS yet. Kapil Kamaretti and Mary Dejewski will be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Yolinga Fan with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Daniel. The United States has announced that it is imposing sanctions on Turkey's government. The move is in response to Ankara's ongoing military offensive in northern Syria. The US President Donald Trump has also contacted Turkish officials to demand an immediate ceasefire. There have been mass demonstrations in Barcelona following a decision by Spain's Supreme Court to sentence nine Catalan separatist leaders to lengthy prison sentences. The successionists... Oh, the successionists. the successionists were convicted of sedition over their role in an illegal independence referendum in 2017. Hong Kong's leader Carrie Lam says that this week's annual policy address will focus on land and housing reform. It comes as anti-government protests show no sign of abating. And Lam added that her administration should consider every means of ending violence in the city-state. And Monocle Minute reports on Toronto's elevated Gardiner Expressway, which divides the city's downtown from Lake Ontario. A new project called Waterfront Reconnect hopes to mend the split city with a couple of easy fixes, including much-needed lighting. For more, head to monocle.com slash minute. Back to you, Daniel.
Thank you, Yolene. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Daniel Bache, here with Mary Dijewski and Kapil Kamaretti. We'll continue with a look at UK politics now. Yesterday, the Queen presided over the official state opening of Parliament, in which the government of Boris Johnson announced its new agenda. Among the policies are plans to require photo ID at voting stations during elections. The UK's opposition has criticized the move, highlighting that it discriminates against minorities, making them less likely to be able to vote, and that the move is designed to enable a higher percentage of turnout for the more typically Tory voters. Kapil, can you talk us through why this move from the government is controversial? Well, for the reasons you've cited, it, it there is evidence that it suppresses voter turnout among the minorities. I have in my pocket a voter ID from India. Uh, All the details on it are wrong. It's got my date of birth (laughs) wrong. It's got my address wrong. And in in 2019, prior to the elections, 120 million people in India, voters, were left out of the rolls. And an overwhelming majority of those were Dalits, who are previously the untouchable caste Mm. in the Hindu caste system, and Muslims. Um, There is evidence in America that a disproportionately large number of African Americans left out. Um, And that same pattern is likely to repeat itself here. That is what the opposition is highlighting, I believe. Uh, Mary, what is the reasoning the government is giving here, though? Uh, There are time and time again governments that try to change the rules about, around voter rights and what you need uh, to cast a vote. But but why particularly this time is Boris Johnson's government saying they want to change it? Well, I know that um, Jeremy Corbyn, lead, leader of the opposition, and in fact, you know, lots of, uh, lots of, as it were, liberal-minded Britons think it's a really, really bad idea um, to have people have to show photo ID to go to vote. Um, and there have been various small scandals in the past um, but actually they've had more to do with um, the postal voting system and registering for postal voting and people doing it sort of en masse um, rather than um, individually turning up um, and not being who you say you are or voting for somebody else at the polling booth. This this doesn't happen very much. Mm. Um, They did um, an experiment at the last election um, and they found very, very little, almost negligible voter fraud. But having said that, having put that, as it were, as devil's advocate, I actually do not see why. I actually think it's extraordinary that the UK holds elections of one of the the very, very few countries in the world where you do not have to prove who you are Mm. in order to cast a vote. And I think it's beyond time that this was introduced. And I also think that um, Jeremy Corbyn and all the people who've sort of rushed to support and say this isn't this is an attempt to rig the election because it'll deprive um, natural opposition voters um, of the possibility to vote. I think that is just complete and utter rubbish because I think that what I think Boris Johnson has got this right because I think what what his um, what his proposal feeds into is an overall lack of trust, distrust in the whole political system, and that not having to show you are show who you are before you cast a vote is one element element that undermines trust in the system, regardless of whether there's any fraud or not. Mm. And I think I, I think he's actually right there. And I do not see why you should not have to show photo ID to go and vote. Uh, Kapil, in a few trials, less than 1% of eligible voters were actually turned away. So would it make a huge difference? Well, 
I think Britain, uh, when I went to vote for the first time in, in London, I was astonished by the fact that I could just walk in, tell my name and cast my vote. Um, but there is evidence. I've just seen the study this morning that uh, a large number of uh, about 300 voters turned away in one of the experiments. Uh, and it depends largely, I think, on the cost of acquiring this ID. If the ID is free. Yes, they I say think, it's going to be free. Well, if it's free, I think more people are likely to acquire. Uh, but what about the people who are not aware of this and who do not go out and fill out the form? But you uh, see, I don't think those people go and vote. I think, you know, it's yeah. people saying, oh, it's going to be so dreadful for the traveller community and the this and that. How many of those people actually vote now? And might they actually be encouraged to vote if they knew there was a system and they applied for an ID? Well, shouldn't then the priority be on getting people actually out to vote? Absolutely. But I don't think that having to show an ID actually encourages or discourages either way. I mm. think, you know, as, as Kapil said, um, I think there's sort of astonishment often um, when you go to vote that you don't have to show ID. You know, you just go up to the you just go up to the desk and they've got a list and you see you say your name. Um, and sometimes they might check your address to see whether you actually know your address. But they just hand you hand you over a ballot paper. I've, mm. I Every time I do that, it seems completely extraordinary to me. And just briefly, I want to look at uh, yesterday, yesterday's ceremony as well, the state opening of Parliament and the Queen's choice of headwear. She opted not for the traditional imperial state crown, instead uh, choosing a lighter option. And she has called the traditional heavier crown unwieldy in the past. Uh, Mary, should we read uh, much into those comments at all? <laughs> I mean, she, she looked quite, quite well for a 93-year-old woman. That was spectacular, wasn't it? And mm. She read her speech absolutely flawlessly and it was very, very hard to believe that she, she she's 93. Um, but apparently the the crown that she describes as unwieldy is so heavy. You know, when, when, you've, seen, uh, when, when you've seen her wearing it on television in the past um, at state openings and other occasions, um, you don't realise how heavy it is. Um, but she talked about it in a television television program over the uh, over the last year um, and she she said something about how you basically you when you were reading the speech you had to um, raise the text of the speech up to eye level rather than look down because mm. if you looked down when you were wearing this incredibly heavy crown two things could happen either it would fall off or you would break your neck it's that <laughs> heavy um, so I think it's a it, it's a very sensible decision that she she, she was wearing the uh, much lighter um, diamond diadem, um, but there was also the element of theatre about it that that crown must be there as the symbol of the monarchy and monarchic power, and so it was brought. I think it was brought on a cushion and it was held throughout the ceremony, and apparently it travelled to Parliament in its own coach, uh, along with the other uh, traditional symbols of uh, of the sovereign as well. Uh, Kapil, what did you make of of the ceremony and and beyond the state of politics in this country? Right now, what do you make of that tradition? Well, as a Republican, uh, as a citizen of India, yeah. uh, I I found the whole thing amusing, uh, and I, it was a reminder to me when I read that the Queen was afraid of her neck breaking if she wore the if she wore the crown. It was a reminder to me that she's actually human. Hmm. Um, it humanized her for me.
Uh, quite interesting uh, to watch yesterday all that ceremony. Then some of it that, that dates back many centuries. Uh, I want to move us on finally uh, to Chinese President Xi Jinping, who has been visiting both Nepal and India in recent days. In India, he met with Prime Minister Narendra Modi to discuss issues such as bilateral trade and regional security. Kapil, uh, what was on the agenda for these two men? It, uh, it seems uh, that uh, you know they want progress, but it, it seemed a little light on substance at times. Yeah, it's an informal summit mm. which began last year. And it, it began in response to a confrontation between Indian and Chinese troops. India and China have been to war once. And these are two Asian giants. China has obviously overtaken India. And China has patronized states surrounding India that are hostile to India. Principal among them, mm. Pakistan. And India wants, India recognizes that it cannot beat China but it also cannot go to war with China. So it has to accommodate China and it needs to talk to them and negotiate with them. There's a trade deficit of $60 billion and the trade overall trade is $95 billion. So these informal summits are meant to create trust, forge a bond between the two leaders. But what it ends up creating is, as you say, there's no substance coming out of them and there are great photo opportunities. Hmm. Immediately after the summit, uh, we don't know what was actually fully discussed in the summit, um, immediately after the summit, uh, the president of uh, Xi Jinping traveled to Nepal, which is India's very, very close friend, partner. India doesn't have allies. Um, and he tried to uh, recruit Nepal into a scheme to expand China's footprint in the region. And that has troubled India greatly. Mm. And that is seen as a form of uh, betrayal by Nepal. So I don't think the summit was in any way a success because... Before arriving in India, Xi Jinping released a statement that he would support Pakistan in any dispute with India. And Kashmir was not at all discussed. That's the big elephant in the room. And that didn't come up once in that discussion. Mary, if there isn't uh, much uh, substance here, uh, what do you make of, of these two leaders meeting in this informal setting? It, it seems Xi Jinping uh, absolutely ruffled a, a few feathers in India. Uh, but these are the leaders of the two uh, largest countries by population in the world. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I don't watch this with anything like the sort of detail or as close up as Kapil does. Um, but to me, just to see, as, uh, as we mentioned, that the, the picture opportunities of the two leaders of the two most populous countries in the world actually meeting, because for so long, you tended to assume that China was aligned with Pakistan, and therefore India was sort of going to be aligned with everybody else. Um, and to see the two getting together like this, even if it's without substance, even if it's not a particular success because they've actually, um, behind the scenes, they're busy disagreeing about things. Um, and, you, you know, you, you look at the map and obviously their strategic interests can be completely at odds if you if if you look ahead if you look ahead 5 10 20 years and you can see that all the seeds for overt conflict are there and yet maybe if these meetings are regular if they if they actually can can communicate in some way maybe this is sowing the seeds for something actually better um, but i think it's um, no i think it's it, it, it's the pictures of those two men commanding basically so many people um, and the extent to which also it's not noticed in, in Europe. 
I mean, you know, in terms of the the people involved in all this, you would have thought that it should be very close to the top of the news in geopolitical significance, barely featured in any of the European news bulletins, including the UK. Uh, Kapil, you've uh, outlined the differences between uh, these two leaders in these two countries. Uh, there is the $95 billion in trade. You also pointed out, but uh, where will these two leaders come together? Where will they actually agree and, and, and what uh, is important for them to come together on? Uh, traditionally, India and China have agreed on pushing back against Western demands to cut emissions. That has been, and traditionally, there's a sense of Asian solidarity. But all of that is not reflected in the bilateral relationship. They view each other with suspicion. And I don't feel, I th- I agree with Mary, I think if this meeting, if this summit is institutionalized, if it becomes a yearly thing between all leaders, I think it's a great, it, it's a great way to diffuse tension between the two countries. And yet I feel that the suspicion that is sown within the minds of the two countries, of the citizens of the two people following the war in 1964, I think that is unlikely to go away, mm-hmm. even with these summits. Kapil Kamaretti and Mary Dijewski, thank you both. In a moment, why people move country and the realities of upping sticks. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Daniel Bage. Finally today, Monocle's new affairs editor, Chris Cermak, reflects on the, shall we say, interesting timing of his recent move to the British capital. Never in my 25 years, says my flabbergasted German removal man, Frank, as he recounts the actions of a group of migrants who jimmied the lock of his moving truck and hid inside. They were hoping to find safe passage from Calais to Dover in the comfort of my boxes, my entire life, really, which were en route with me to London from Berlin recently. Two of the stowaways were caught by the French, and three more by British police, who were apparently far more professional, armed with sensors to detect heat signatures. Six hours later, the truck finally boarded a ferry. The whole episode made me step back and reflect on what makes the UK attractive, so attractive that people would risk their lives to come here. It's a counterpoint to the Germans who had heard about my move and said, you're moving to London? Well, that's brave of you. As Brexit negotiations enter their final stages, it's worth stepping back and remembering that many people move for more fundamental reasons than their political proclivities. They move to escape conflict, join family, or find a job. Not everyone has the luxury to reflect on politicking or the colorful leaders' ever-changing stances, pledges, and promises. Certainly not the people who stowed away in the back of that truck. (music) 
That was Chris Cermak, and that is it for today's program, Monaco's House View, produced by Tom Hall and researched by Yolinga Fan. Our studio managers, Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000 hours London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. That's 1500 in New York City. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 in London, 1300 in Toronto. I'm Daniel Bage. Thank you so much for listening, and goodbye. Oh,